Well, if you have a Bible with you, you can open up to Matthew chapter 28. And we're going to continue our study through the, the gospel of Matthew. We've been studying Matthew actually for five years now in chunks. And, uh, and here we are. We're finally coming to the end. I think it's been over 100 sermons. And uh, here we are on Easter uh, reading the narrative of uh, G- Jesus' resurrection. And so uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, you can uh, follow along right there in the bulletin. Uh, the passage we're going to be studying together is printed for you. And uh, so here... The word of the risen Lord. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But... The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly, tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. They departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. And there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if uh, this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Let's pray together. Our great Father in heaven, You are our life. We thank you for this narrative, the truth. And we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts, open our our minds and our imaginations to behold the profound wonder of what happened on this day 2,000 years ago when our Lord was risen from the dead. Instruct our hearts, lead us to faith, lead us to joy. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So as I mentioned, we're in the, this final chapter, the Gospel of Matthew. After Jesus was crucified on the third day, he was risen from the dead, which is this belief is the centerpiece of the Christian faith. And um, I, I think for many people, you know, when they hear the story about Jesus being raised from the dead, I think they, they think that what that's pri- primarily telling us 
is that there is an existence beyond the grave. You know, when we die, our souls go somewhere. You know, we don't, we're not just, you know, because some of you maybe have had that question. You know, everyone wonders, you know, what happens when you die? You know, does your, do you just lose your consciousness and your body rots in the ground? Or, or, you know, do you enter into the light? Do you float into the light? Or do you, you know, does your soul go to heaven? What happens? And we think that, well, Easter is saying, well, there's an existence after. There's an existence for Jesus. There's an exis- existence for us. Now, these are, they're, those are important questions. And they're questions that the Bible addresses. But these are emphatically not what Easter is about. Uh, Easter is about something far more wild and unthinkable than what happens to our souls when our, our, we die. Because the Bible is very explicit that, that on the third day when Jesus rose, it was not his soul that the women encountered. It was not a spirit. It was not a ghost. It was his body was raised from the dead. His body came back from life. And, and you know, the writers of the gospel make a point of this. So, for example, in this passage I just read to you, you'll notice there in verse 9, these women who, you know, are going to the tomb and, and they meet Jesus. And this is what it says in verse 9. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came and took hold of his feet. You don't take hold of a ghost or a spirit or a soul. You take hold of a body. And then actually, maybe that little episode that you caught in there as well, where it, it, um, on the, the day that Jesus was raised, the chief priest told the soldiers in, there in uh, uh, verse 13, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were sleeping. Now, if Jesus' disciples were telling everyone, Jesus' soul or spirit is still alive, what does that have to do with the tomb? But the problem was the tomb was empty. The body was gone. It was Jesus, um, uh, the, the message of Jesus' disciples that they were spreading was the far more wild story that bodily death had been undone, had been reversed. That's what Easter's about. And I'll tell you, it's a much stranger story. Maybe it's strange for you. Maybe you haven't really thought about how strange that is. Well, this morning, we're going to talk about the significance of that event the resurrection of Jesus. And in particular, we're going to look at some of the details of this story, and I want to draw out four truths that we observe in here. This is what they are. Is that the resurrection is the beginning of a new creation. The resurrection is an event in history. The resurrection is a gift of grace, and the resurrection demands a response from us. Four things. A new creation, an event in history, a gift of grace, and it demands a response for us. And these are, these are important, beautiful truths. Some of my favorite, to- maybe my favorite topic to talk about in the Bible. So I'm excited to look at this together this morning. So first, the resurrection is the beginning of a new creation. And you'll notice that this passage I just read begins with giving special attention to what day it was. Right? You see that there in verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn... Of the first day. It was the first day of the week. It was Sunday. Saturday was the Jewish Sabbath. And then it was Sunday. It was the first day of the new week. And, you know, the, uh, for a, a Jew living in the first century, the way that a Jewish person would have thought of time would have been based on Genesis chapter 1, the very beginning of the Bible, where it says that God made the world in six days. And then the seventh day, he rested. And so uh, Jews would say that's what we do. We spend six days. We work. And on the seventh day, we rested. And so... When Matthew points out here that Jesus' resurrection happened on the eighth day, 
the first day of a new week, it's suggesting to us that a new creation is beginning. A new week is starting. And this is what other writers in the New Testament say in other places. And that God is, in Jesus, making a new world. The resurrection of Jesus is the beginning of a new world, which is an interesting thought. Here, right in the middle of the old world that God made, is the beginning of a new world inside that world. And so, uh, you know, God has made this good, beautiful world with all the mountains and the rivers and the sun and the moon and everything and the stars. And it's so, you know, enchanting. And yet humanity has kind of darkened and destroyed God's good, good, good green earth. And so you might imagine when humanity comes and destroys God's earth with all of our selfishness and our greed and our wars and everything, that God would just scrap that world and then I'm just going to start over and make a new world. But that's not what God does. When God makes something good, he doesn't just scrap it. He redeems it. He transforms it. He restores it. And actually, some of you have, you've just experienced that in your personal life. I know for me, you know, I, I didn't grow up going to church. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't know what Easter was growing up. And, you know, I was having a lot of problems when I was a teenager, you know. I was on drugs and dropping out of school and giving, you know, my parents all kinds of problems. And so I, I became a Christian when I was, when I was uh, actually, I was just thinking about this last night. It was 20 years ago this April. I was baptized 20 years ago. And uh, so 20 years ago, God changed my life. And, you know, my parents, when I had become a Christian and uh, I came back to them, I was kind of reconciled to them. They said, you know, you are a radically different person now that God has come into your life. And yet you're still the same old Nate. God, when he makes a new creation, he doesn't scrap the old person, the old personality. He doesn't erase all that. He renews it. You become more yourself. And this world, when the new world comes, is not destroyed. It becomes more itself and becomes more renewed. And, uh, and in Jesus' resurrection, there is a power that is introduced into this world so that when we believe in Jesus, that same power that raised him from the dead begins to work in our lives to change how we think, how we feel, how we see the world, how we relate to God and relate to each other. That power that raised him from the dead works in us. We become a part of the new world set in the old world. The new world is in the middle of the old world. Now you might say, okay, now wait a second. You just said that there was a power that raised Jesus' body from the dead. And now you're saying that that power is at work in us, but don't our bodies die when we get to the end of our life? Aren't we also going to die? Well, yes, but what the Bible says is that the new world that God is making is, has only come in part right now. So all of, if you are in Christ, it's like you got one foot in the old world, one foot in the new world. But there is coming a time where the new world of Jesus' resurrection will come in full. And at that time, this is the wild hope of Easter. The Bible says that what God did for Jesus when he raised his body from the dead, he will do for all those who belong to Jesus. They will come alive. Their human life, bodily life, will come alive to an indestructible life. And that God will not scrap this earth. He is going to come and heal 
his creation and flood this world with his presence. And so everything that you dream, you know, you know, all of us have a sense of like, you know, this world is so beautiful. It's so filled with pleasures and wonders. It's so, you know, on the one hand, it's so enchanting to be a part of this world. And yet on the other hand, being a part of this world is so miserable. It's so frustrating. There's so many things that I want to do with my life and that experience of being human and I can't or I don't get a chance to do it. And what the hope of the resurrection is, that there is nothing about being human that we will miss out on. Everything that we were intended to experience about God and about each other and about his creation, about all the cultures of the world, all the pleasures of the world, we will experience in the resurrection and God will renew his creation and we will be a part of it. We will have a share in it. And it will be human life, okay? It's not gonna be souls bouncing around on clouds. It's gonna be cities and it's gonna be the arts and it's gonna be the foods. Imagine creativity where humans are using all their creative skills to glorify God and to love and serve one another. And so our diversity of all the ethnic groups does not tear us apart, but it binds us together into this beautiful mosaic. That is what God is creating through the resurrection and it has begun with the resurrection of Jesus. It is the beginning of a new world. Easter is not about our soul leaving this place and going off to the netherworld. You see, this is a totally different story. The resurrection of a body is something totally different. Easter is about God's renewal of all things in Jesus. And it is the offer for you and me to become participants in the renewal of all things. That we might be renewed. And that through us, God would use us to participate in the renewing of all things. And so this is the first thing about what the resurrection is. is the new creation. It's the beginning of a new creation. Now some of you may hear that and you say, wow, that's pretty breathtaking hope that a Christian believes that God would raise our bodies from the dead. De death would be undone. There's a future world coming where human life will have full thriving. God will, will like feel his presence on our skin everywhere we go. He'll be like the air we breathe and the sun on our face will be the very presence of God. And you say, that's pretty amazing. But, you know, how could you ever confidently believe that something like that could be true? I mean, it's just too good to be true. I mean, I, it's beautiful, but just because it's a beautiful story doesn't mean it's true. Well, that leads to, to the second point that we want to point from this passage. Not only that the resurrection is the beginning of a new creation, but second, that the resurrection is an event in history. The resurrection of Jesus' body is an event. We, we know basically what day it happened on. We know where it happened. So this is not in the area of legend, this is not a legend, this is a historical event. And actually, the amount of evidence that points toward the historicity of Jesus' resurrection is actually large. I wish I had time to go through all of it this morning. I, I don't have time, but I, I want to just point out one example of the kind of evidence that we have for the historicity of Jesus' resurrection. You'll notice in this passage the role that women play as the first witnesses to Jesus' resurrection. Look at verse 1 again, where it says... Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Now, over and over again, Matthew uses the language of seeing in this passage. So this angel comes and meets these two women who are at the tomb to go find Jesus. And then it, look at what it says, verse 5 again. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said, come See the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, 
He is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. These women are the chief eyewitnesses to the resurrection. Now, the reason why this is so important is because in the ancient world, women were not regarded as people who could have a credible testimony in the court of law. No one would have believed the testimony of a woman. And uh, if this story is a fabrication, if Matthew made all this up, there would be no reason to make your primary authority, the eyewitness, women, because anyone could have just immediately just dismissed it and say, well, no one believes, in, believes a woman anyways. And the only reason we would have women playing such a prominent role in the narrative is because God chose them. People in that culture would not have chosen them, but God would choose them. And contrary to the beliefs of this ancient culture, the women are the witnesses because that's what really happened. This is what really happened. You wouldn't make that up. And there are details like this that are sprinkled throughout the gospel accounts that give it the mark of authenticity. This is an uh, authentic historical account. And the resurrection is therefore an event that happened in history. And we have the eyewitness testimony of those who saw it. Now, by the way, actually, there's a lot more to say about the women that happened in this passage. You have to come back next week. Next week, we're going to talk again about this passage and about the role of women in ministry and Jesus, the, uh, God, how God works through women in the world. So you have to come back and hear about that next week. But still, you know, someone might say, okay, I understand you have eyewitnesses. That's strange that they would choose women. That does sound like a historical account. But, you know, we're modern people. We know now about the laws of nature, and we, the laws of nature, science has confirmed to us that people don't rise from the dead. That just doesn't happen. And, and so how could we possibly, as a modern person, believe that that happened? Well, you know, there's a couple answers to that. The first answer to that is, well, yeah, we know that those are the laws of the old creation. Jesus is the beginning of a new creation. Do you know the laws of the new creation? That bodies don't come back to life. Actually, that's one of the hallmarks of the new creation is resurrection life. So that's the one thing is we don't know about the new creation. We haven't studied that. But the second thing is this, that, you know, the scientists in Western culture who first used that language of the laws of nature were, uh, were scientists who had a Christian view of the world. And so they believed that... Uh, the reason we would say that there are laws of nature, you know, that like apples, like apple is like a, you know, a citizen in some nation that obeys this law. There's a law that it obeys and, you know, like physical things all obey these laws. It's like there's these little citizens everywhere. And if there are citizens everywhere, the whole, you know, all physical things are little citizens obeying laws. There must be a lawmaker. And that's why they came up with the laws of nature is because we believe there was a rational God who made this world and, and wove into it certain laws. And so the question is, if God is the lawmaker who made all the laws of nature, can he ever make an exception to his own laws? Of course, God can make exceptions to his own laws. You know, it's like, uh, you know, in a, in, a, in a family, you know, good parents are going to have a certain orderliness, laws in their home. And they say, you know, we obey the laws and you're going to be consistent and regular with those laws, and you know, in a loving and, uh, you know, wise home. But a loving and wise parent is also going to have the right times to break those laws, right? You know, it's Henry's birthday today and we're going to stay up a little later and watch a movie, right? Because it's the right time. And... 
This is fully what you would expect a good and wise God to do, that there's an orderliness to how God runs his universe, yet the resurrection was the right time for him to bend the rules. Now listen, this is not a proof that this happened. The only reason I'm telling you this is, is for us to recognize that you can absolutely be a rational, intelligent, thoughtful person, a scientifically-minded person, and still believe in the wild hope that Jesus' body was raised from the dead and that was the beginning of a new world that we can have a share in by faith in Jesus. We can have that wild hope and still be intelligent people. And so what we've seen so far is that the resurrection of Jesus is an event in history that began a new creation within the old creation by which God was set his world to right again. And so the next question is like, okay, wow, that's beautiful. How can I have a part in that? How can I experience the renewal of all things? And this leads to the third point we want to look at in this passage today is that the resurrection is a gift of grace. The resurrection is a gift of grace. And this is an important point because I think the average person understands that what Christianity is about is about people living a moral life, you know, keeping their nose clean. And if you live your life and keep your nose clean, then when you die, you get to go to the happy place. That's basically what I think the average person's understanding of what Christianity is about. But, you know, if you go and you read the Gospels, you read about Jesus, you find that the people that he was extending God's love and power to were always the people that had been rejected and thrown out by the world. People were more, had moral failings, you know, prostitutes and tax collectors and, and uh, people that were outcasts, you know, the, the disabled. And over and over he, again, he was going and saying, I want to give you my kingdom. I want to invite you into my kingdom. It's because the resurrection is a gift of great grace to the undeserving. You have to be the undeserving in order to receive the grace. And, you know, there's a beautiful example of that in this passage, um, you know, one of the reasons why I think there was two women at the tomb was because every single one of Jesus' male disciples had abandoned him when he died on the cross. And actually, on the night before Jesus died, he told them all in Matthew 26, you will fall away uh, because of me this night. And so right when being a disciple counted, are you going to be loyal to Jesus? He's going on trial. All of them left him. And so this is a massive failure. And yet... Almost the first words out of Jesus' mouth when he's raised from the dead. Look at what it says in verse 10. Then Jesus said to the women, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. You see what he says, my brothers. Those guys that just failed me, that weren't there for me, that ran away right when I was in trouble, they're my brothers. Go tell them I'm coming to meet them. I can't wait to see them. I can't wait to show them I'm alive. I can't wait to forgive them. I can't wait to think about what's next and what God's going to do in this world through building the church. He embraced them. That is what grace is. That those who had failed God, he is willing to call his brothers. And, you know, some of you, you might think that what is church? What, church is a bunch of people who are trying to keep their nose clean so they can go to the happy place when they die. And that is not what church is. Church is filled with people who have come to realize they have failed Jesus. And he has called us brothers amazingly. He still calls us brothers. And uh, the resurrection is when 
we real, experiencing the resurrection is realizing that we can be a part of the renewal of all things, not because it's something I've earned. It's not something that I deserve. It's not something that God owes me. It is a gift of sheer grace. And that is who the risen Lord is. The one who's powerful, the one who started the new world, turns out to be gracious and kind to the outcast. And we can welcome and, and we can come to him confidently. But then you might ask, you say, well, okay, that's great. Wow, Jesus invites the outcast, the moral failings. Doesn't he care how we live in, in this life? Does he care if we live moral lives? Of course he cares how we live. Grace will always change you. When you experience grace, it will transform your life. It will not leave you the same. But it changes you in a way that is far deeper than simply keeping your nose clean. And I love how this passage describes the effect of grace on us. Look at what it says in verse 8. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. When grace has hit your life, the experience is fear and joy. Fear and joy, which are both emotions that I think our culture has largely lost. You know, we think, we look at the world around us and we think, oh, what is the universe? It's basically cold, hard matter and there's all these laws of nature. But there's certainly, there's not a meaningfulness to the world. You know, everything has just come here by chance. And, uh, and there's a certain uh, emptiness to the universe. And we think, I will only believe in something is true if it can be verified by scientific method. And so we come to a passage like this and we say, isn't this a myth? Guy rising from the dead, isn't that a myth? Of course it's a myth. And the problem is that for you and me is that we don't realize that we are living in a myth. This is a mythological world. You're living in a world, there are rhinos and blue whales in the world you're living in. You're living, you know, there are squirrels. You don't think squirrels are weird, but you come, people from another culture think squirrels are weird. And this whole world is filled with monsters of all size, and you are living in a mythological world. And actually, there are all these things that just like come up out of the ground. They grow up, these pillars that come up out of the ground, they're made of wood. And some of them are like 100 feet tall. I'm not kidding. You can make like violins out of them and, and like sailboats and books and stuff. And some of them have this food that comes out in these balls and you eat it it's like candy. It's really sweet. I'm not, I'm serious. This is really true. And you just go up to them and you can pick it right off and you start eating it. And you all are like the strangest monsters of all of them. Like you have these holes in your face and these sounds come out and you all understand what I'm saying. And you live in that world. And unless your eyes are open to the fact that you are living in a mythological world, you're never going to understand the resurrection. And the reason the myth of the resurrection makes, should make sense to us is because we are living in a mythological world. And what the gospel tells us is that the author of the myth that we're all living in has written himself into the myth. He's become one of the monsters. He became one of the monsters and, and he showed us what love is and he conquered death. And in fact, the author of the myth knows each one of you intimately. He made you. And you might think you're here this morning, you know, because, oh, it's Easter and I'm here with my family. And, or, I, you know, I just go to church on Easter. No, you're not here because that. You are here because the king has bid you to come into his presence. The author of the myth has wrote, written it into the story that you would be here and stand before him and hear from him his holy word. That's the kind of world that we are living in. And when you realize that that's the kind of world you're living in, the reaction is fear and joy. Fear and joy. That's what it means to be alive is fear and joy. 
And we have tried to escape the fear of living in a world that was made by God. Living in, you know, we say things like, science has proven there aren't miracles and stuff like that. No, it hasn't. Why do you think that our culture, our society is so depressed, so hollow, so empty, so hopeless? It's because we've lost the vision of the kind of world we are living in. And the resurrection of Jesus is the gift of grace to empty, depressed, hopeless, and hollow people that awakens in us those deepest human emotions of deep fear and deeper joy. That's what Easter is. Easter is not about your soul floating off to the netherworld. It's about the renewal of all things. And it's begun in history, and we are a part of it as a gift of grace. We have failed God, and he called us his brothers. It's amazing. So this leads to the last question, or the last point, that the resurrection then demands a response. We hear all this. We hear this announcement of what the gospel is. How should we respond to this announcement? And there's two ways that people respond in this passage. The first is this. We respond by worshiping Jesus as God. And twice it says that when people met the risen Jesus, their immediate response was to fall down and worship him. Look at verse 9. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. Like, friends, I'm alive. Hey, you know, he's like cheerful guy. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Verse 16, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. When we realize what's happening in the resurrection, the response is worship. And the thing that's remarkable about this is these are all Jews living in the first century who would have never dreamed about worshipping a man. That is, Jews are insistent. We worship the one true invisible God. Uh, and all over the Bible, people... You know, an angel will come and visit someone and they'll just be struck with fear and they'll fall down and start worshiping the angel. And the angel's like, get up, don't worship me. I'm just an angel, I'm a servant, you worship God alone. Or, you know, the apostles would heal someone and they'd fall down and start worshiping the apostles. And they're like, get up, don't worship me, I'm just a servant. You know, you worship God alone. And then amazingly, in Jesus' resurrection, they fall down and they worship him. And what does Jesus do? He takes it. It's an amazing statement. I am the God who made you. I am the myth writer. And when I come to your presence, this is the right thing for you to do to worship me. Jesus is acknowledging that he is the mysterious creator. He is the man who made the world. The man who made the world. That's the myth. So first of all, the first response is we respond by worshiping Jesus as God. Second, we respond by following Jesus as king. And you'll notice that this passage, it ends with these powerful words from our Lord, verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And how the first Christians understood this is that when God raised Jesus from the dead, he was basically declaring to the world, this is my king. This is my king who is going to rule all of the nations. I'm giving all the people from every nation, ethnic group to him, and he is going to rule over them. And, you know, we're just, as a society, we're just coming out of an election season where we have been talking hotly 
about who is going to lead us, who's going to lead us to prosperity, who's going to make the world right and set the world right, and we're constantly asking that question. And God is saying in the resurrection, you all choose your leaders, I'm choosing my king, this is him, and I'm declaring that he is my king by raising him from the dead. And you must follow him, you must submit to him. And I'll tell you, where we are right now, this Easter morning, there are millions of communities like this in every nation of the world worshiping Jesus and saying he is our king. We give our allegiance to him. There are hundreds of millions of people around the world who would die for Jesus. Many of you here would say if it came to it, I would die for Jesus. He is my king. I give him my allegiance and it is his kingdom that I believe in and that I'm loyal to. That is our response. That's what the announcement is. The declaration is that Jesus is the king of the new creation. The new creation is begun. And so the question that is posed to us is will we have the heart, will we have the fear, will we have the humility, will we have the imagination and love to believe it? Let's pray together. Our great Father in heaven, we confess that our flesh never dreamed of such a story as, dis as displayed for us in the scriptures and in the gospel of our Lord, that you have come to enter our world, to share in our misery, to conquer death and sin and hell and the evil one. Lord, Stir in us a longing that we would understand who you are, understand our world and our place in it, and understand the gospel. I pray for those who are here who have never heard this gospel, and I pray for your Holy Spirit, the power that raised Jesus from the dead, to form faith in their hearts, that they would have the courage to believe that this wild hope is really true. We ask this in Christ's name, amen.